2: A short drive along the main highway out of the Georgian capital Tbilisi brings you to the small town of Gori. Its main landmark is a museum that shouldn't exist. So, uh, we're entering this building, this um, sort of Soviet imperial building, which says, the plaque says, Государственный дом-музей и В. Stalina," the state home museum of Joseph Stalin. It's an imposing structure of columns and honey-coloured stone set back from the road amid a garden. Inside this gothic palazzo, hardly anything has changed since it opened in the 1950s. There is musty red carpet, sombre lighting and rows of glass display cases containing relics from Stalin's life. The only hint of novelty is a gift shop. There's merch. Stalin T-shirts. This is surreal. (laughs) Next call, please. small groups of tourists cluster around guides offering tours in Russian and Georgian but there is one who speaks English
3: so uh, Joseph Stalin was born in December 1879 uh, Stalin lived in Gori for 50 years in this picture he is 30 years old <clears throat>
2: His it's eerie I feel like I am back in my Soviet school days.
3: After his last exile in March 1917, Stalin arrived in St. Petersburg. In autumn 1917, the Socialist Revolution took place in Russia. After this revolution, the Soviet Union was formed. The first socialist state in the world. In 1991, it was divided into 15 parts. The Republic of Georgia is one of them. Stalin was one of the most active participants of this event. He was a
2: Stalin turned the USSR into a vast Gulag archipelago with prison camps, torture cells, and mass graves. None of that's mentioned here.
3: He had a good voice, and for all his life, he was a good singer. He liked to sing the Georgian and Russian folk songs. Is it
2: In the gardens outside the museum, next to Stalin's armoured-plated train carriage, is something even stranger. Encased in a temple of colonnades is a rickety wooden hut, not much bigger than a garden shed. It's Stalin's childhood home. There is a double bed here, and this is allegedly the bed in which Stalin's mother gave birth. And I came here first in the 1990s, and I remember, and I still have this feeling, that this is... Okay, so this is the place where the devil was born. To me, the war in Ukraine is a continuation of Stalin's violent empire. And so, 30 years on from my first visit to Gori, it's clear that the devil is still here, alive and well. All of this brings to mind the plot of one of my favorite films, a classic of Georgian cinema. It's called Repentance, and it came out in 1987, when the Soviet Union started to open up. It's set in a small Georgian town, the size of Gori. The despotic mayor has died. There is a funeral, but his corpse keeps reappearing in the family's garden. Every time they rebury him, he comes back, claiming lives from beyond the grave. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky, from The Economist. This is next year in Moscow. This is his death mask. Episode 3, Baggage. It's not quite dirty yet. In one sense, the war in Ukraine didn't begin in 2022. It didn't even begin in 2014, when Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea. It started the first time Putin invaded one of Russia's neighbors and got away with it. That was here, in Georgia. So yes, this is the road and we're now driving. The weather is, it's very foggy. and. The visibility is not great, but we're hoping to see from the side of the road Russian military base. After leaving the museum, we drove down a country road to the foothills of the Caucasus mountains. On the map, this is clearly Georgian territory, a hundred kilometres or so from the Russian border. And yet, the Russian military has set up camp. According to the agreements which were reached then, Russians should be well out of here. But here we are, 15 years later, and Russian troops are still here. I made the journey with my friend, Shota Utyashvili.
4: And that's the basic problem of you know, living next door to Russia is that there are no rules. There are no treaties, there are no agreements, nothing is relevant. They will do whatever they please, so there are no rules whatsoever that
2: apply. No, no treaties that you can trust. Shota is a bear of a man who exudes the warmth which Georgia is famous for. But the last time I was here with him, he was wearing military fatigues. It was August 2008. Shota was a deputy minister in the Georgian government, and Gori was under fire from Russian troops who had crossed into Georgia from the north of the Caucasus mountains.
5: Russian planes again bombing Georgian targets this morning. It is the fourth day of battling over Georgia's disputed province of South Ossetia.
2: The war only lasted five days, but it was a grim marker. It was the first time Russia openly used force outside the country since the end of the Soviet Union. Shota wanted me to see a remnant of that war, so we drove up a remote valley blanketed in fresh snow to the edge of the Georgian controlled territory.
4: When you go to these areas occupied by Russia or close to them, the key word is the silence, you know, nothing moves. Nobody moves. Nobody's asking questions. Nobody's answering the questions. Everything and everybody remains silent. That's the only only way for survival.
2: We pulled up next to a barrier. Next to that was a tin shack with a generator. Some bored-looking police and a dog were hanging around outside. So what are we looking at? Where is the Russian
1: base?
4: That, uh, That compound you see, fenced the concrete blocks, you see the radio tower, you see the watchtower, you see these guard towers, and they go from there and uh, detain everybody who dares to cross
2: from either side. So this military base is about 40 kilometers from Belisi. And it's just a point of intimidation, isn't it? I mean, what what's the point of having it here?
4: Yeah, it's an intimidation. We are close, we are here. And uh, if we decide to come, we are so, so close that we'll do it before anybody wakes up. It was a nice place, Uh, beautiful mountains. A lot of people would go there for for travel, for fun, for for hiking. Now it's completely dead. The Russians have isolated it. Probably one-tenth of
2: the population that was there remains. It's a jarring scene, this beautiful mountainous place, but off in the distance is a military base which has no right to be there. And it tells a wider story about Georgia. Fifteen years after the war, Russia still occupies twenty percent of the country. The war, the occupation—these are Putin's ways of punishing Georgia for a past transgression, a moment when they broke free from the Soviet past. And we don't want to turn this country into a battlefield
4: between the different superpowers. And
2: Georgia's president back then was a reformer. I am not pro-American or pro-Russian, I am pro-Georgian. Mikhail Saakashvili was a young lawyer, educated in America, the subject of glowing profiles in Western media. He was swept to power by a popular uprising in 2003 and moved on to dismantle the country's Soviet legacy of corruption and colonialism. He was fast modernizing the economy and society. The leader of the free world took note. George W. Bush, who visited Tbilisi, hailed Georgia as a beacon of democracy, and later said that it might, one day, join NATO. Putin responded with a war and a warning to the West to stay out of his backyard in Georgia and across the former Soviet empire. And when America failed to punish his aggression in Georgia in any meaningful way, he took it as a green light to attack Ukraine. Saakashvili, the former president, shot his old boss, is now in jail. And the country is effectively controlled by a reclusive tycoon who made his fortune in Russia. And Georgia is fast slipping into Russia's orbit. Its government is even starting to copy some of the Kremlin's ways, which is why Georgians like Shota are fearing for their own freedom and independence. And so, how long this base stays here depends on the on what happens in Ukraine. Well, and
4: basically, I think the survival of Georgia as a state that depends what happens on Ukraine. So it's it's totally totally linked. Physically, it might be more than a thousand kilometers away, but um, it's, it's our war just happening at front that's a little bit further.
2: But there are also all the Russians who've come to Tbilisi since the war, who've escaped the war, who fled Russia, who um, activists emigres um, now. How does that play out in Georgia? What do Georgians feel about that?
4: Uh, it's controversial to, to many people. All the Georgians watch the evening news of what Russians are doing in Ukraine, and they get really angry. But on the other hand, uh, and I think that uh, Georgia did the right thing to keep the border open because these people who don't want to go and fight and kill and be killed, they they need to have an option. The more Russians flee, less there are to, to go and fight and kill. And then the people themselves, the Russians who are here, they would be treasure for any country, seriously. I mean, it's not oil and gas, that's Russia's wealth, it's these people. And if Russia doesn't like these people,
2: you know, they are more than local. But there are two sets of Russians present in Georgia now. The liberals in the streets and cafes of old Tbilisi and the ones behind the barbed wire staring back at us across a snowy valley from the military base. A few weeks after the war in Georgia, I wrote my first in-depth report about Russia for The Economist. The key quote in the piece came from Yegor Gaidar. In 1991, as a senior member of Boris Yeltsin's government, Gaidar helped draft the agreement that dissolved the Soviet Union. He was there in the Belovezhia forest when the leaders of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, the three republics that had originally formed the USSR, agreed the terms of the divorce. And he designed reforms that took Russia from a centrally planned economy to capitalism. By the mid-1990s, Gaida, a clear-eyed man with a knowledge of history, was writing books and giving interviews. Pointing to the dangers of post-imperial syndrome in Russia.
3: Our guest today is Yegor Gaidar. He played a leading role uh, in the transformation of the Soviet economy after the fall of communism.
2: In one interview, filmed at the University of California, Berkeley, he was asked about Russia's future. The easiest policymaking is to play on the hard national feelings. He drew parallels with the fall of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Nazism in Germany.
4: It was all the Jewish American plot. We were never beaten in the battle. We were betrayed from, from the back. Uh, now we have to recover it. Uh, we have once again to be an empire. We will reconquer it, et cetera. So all of these rhetorics uh, is very, very familiar from the uh, uh, German 30s. So of course, the danger is there. And from my point of view, it is uh, probably most serious danger for my country and maybe for the world.
2: The war in Georgia was the moment Yegor Gaidar's fears started to become reality. This is how I quoted him in my article. We're dealing with a country that has suffered a collapse of empire and a significant part of the Russian elite feels the time has come to fight back. Not long after, I received a call in the middle of the night. It was Yegor Gaidar. He sounded agitated, He'd just read my story and he wanted to stress something to me. He said, You can't even begin to imagine just how dangerous these people are.
5: Hi, I'm Rachna Shanbhog, Business Affairs Editor at The Economist. I want to tell you about some of the reporting our team has done on what the war in Ukraine means for energy markets and the global economy. Most recently, we've looked at the way in which Russia is dodging oil sanctions on an industrial scale. Once-dominant Western firms have pulled back from trading, shipping and insuring Russian oil. In their place, mysterious newcomers are selling the country's crude – Many have never dealt in this stuff before and are using ageing tankers and ropier insurance. Ukraine's allies have good reasons for wanting to wash their hands of Russian oil. But the global energy system has also become more dispersed, divided and dangerous. It's just one of the economic effects of the war we've covered in The Economist this past year. If you already subscribe to The Economist, thank you. You make this possible. Otherwise, for access to all our journalism and to join exclusive events with our and others on our team, visit economist.com slash moscowoffer. That's economist.com slash moscowoffer. The link is in the notes for this podcast.
1: Ready to pop the question?
2: Sasha Gabuiv is one of Russia's top China experts, and he has spent his career in close proximity to the country's elite. He used to work as a journalist covering the Kremlin, a job which left him with an unusual qualification.
1: I think I have a PhD in cynicism after working four years in the Kremlin press corps, because you actually get to know the Russian elite. Not too well. You're not a real... Insider, you're not doing dodgy business deals with them, but you know them socially. You drink with them, you have dinners, some people with their family members, and you get really disillusioned about the ability of the so-called oligarchs to influence the decision-making in the Kremlin.
2: I profiled Sasha for The Economist in 2018. By that time, he was working as a China expert at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a top foreign policy think tank. And he was pulling together a network of like-minded professionals. At the time, I believe people like him might one day run the country. And so did he. We need to be ready, he told me. He was 33, around the same age that Yegor Gaidar was when he started reforming the Russian economy. And there is another coincidence. Because Sasha was born on an important day in Soviet history.
1: That's 10th of March. 10th of March, 85.
2: Right. On the day when you were born, Konstantin Chernenko, uh, the general secretary uh, of the Communist Party, the last of that Stalinist generation, died. There were funeral ribbons and flags, but few people were mourning. The man put in charge of his funeral and by extension the country, was Mikhail
1: Gorbachev.
2: Russian history moves in generational shifts. Gorbachev was from a different generation to the old Soviet leaders, and he began his new era of glasnost and perestroika by dismantling the two pillars on which Stalin's empire had been built, violence and lies. Sasha and his generation were the beneficiaries of those reforms. In my article, I call them Gorbachev's grandchildren. And I once spoke to Gorbachev, and Gorbachev said to me, when we started reforms, we didn't do it for us. You know, Gorbachev basically let power go. Um, We didn't do it for ourselves. We didn't do it for our children. We did it for our grandchildren. To what extent do you feel this country now has been kind of stolen from you, and this war is against you as well and your generation?
1: It's part of the generational struggle. Uh, I think that it's really a war against Russia's future, and the future will be just very different now. It will be a very different trajectory if February 24th have not happened. In Russia, the time has frozen there are people my age making serious decisions in the Kremlin, but the top decisions that really set the strategic direction are made by people, Putin's generation. Vladimir Putin was born in
2: 1952, the final months of Stalin's rule.
1: And in a way, yes, the country has been stolen, but I wouldn't drop the responsibility from my shoulders and people like myself We are adults. I'm 37. I made, I think, all the right choices in never voting for Putin and going for protest when that was still kind of possible. But we didn't do enough. Sasha was the only person
2: in my circle who was convinced that Putin would invade. Working from his office in Moscow, he was paying attention to the people who really mattered, reading interviews and manifestos of the former KGB men who were now in charge of Russia. Most of us were talking to people who didn't want war, the oligarchs and the bureaucrats,
1: and they simply couldn't grasp what was about to happen. There was this stage of shock initially, because not that many people could conceive the war against Ukraine. Because it's not exaggeration to say that nearly everybody I know has a family or friends linked to Ukraine. To imagine that Russia would go to war and kill Ukrainians was absolutely bonkers to so many people on so many levels. And that's why it produced an emotional freeze for a couple of first weeks when people have been paralyzed, and then it was too late.
2: Can you explain why
1: has there not been a split in the Russian elite? The elements of why people are not speaking out and not pushing back and there is no split are free. One is the cynicism of so many people. So many people are just completely bought in after many things that Russia did. The other is fear, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, many incidents that have never been properly investigated. All of these mysterious deaths of Russians inside and outside Russian borders tell the people that the chance to be dead and to be killed is there. And it's a Russian roulette. You don't want to play it unless you are very brave and courageous. And then three, these are people who believe that, okay, if I'm leaving my position at the central bank or minister of finance, they will bring an ideologue who is incompetent and that will ruin Russia and ruin the economy and will make millions of people poor. And then still they will find money to continue the war effort.
2: That Faustian bargain to be a moderating influence in an evil regime could have been available to Sasha. His knowledge of China and his skills as a networker made him a dream candidate for the diplomatic corps. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, once tried to recruit him for a job in the Kremlin. And Lavrov was not the only one. But for Sasha, the invasion of Ukraine made any work within the system morally indefensible.
1: The idea that you, as an intellectual, can basically switch sides, go inside the system that is killing Ukrainians and killing Russians and destroying the future of your country, and to be useful, and to help it to kind of come to light, just strikes me as very unrealistic and just out of this world.
2: It was equally unrealistic, though, for Sasha to carry on with his job for an American think tank while living in Russia. He might have been well-connected in Moscow, but he was just as well-connected in Washington. His former boss, Bill Burns, is now the director of the CIA, It's no surprise that security services were keeping tabs on him.
1: You always are of interest to the Russian counterintelligence, which I have been. And they've been in touch, just checking on me and saying, have you betrayed the motherland? The pressure
2: grew a few days into the war when it became clear that Putin's plan for a quick blitz would
1: not materialize. By day three, it was clear that something is very, very much off from the original plan that it's not working according to Putin's war plan. And that's where the Prosecutor General's Office issued a warning that we remind everybody, those who work for foreign companies, who kind of talk to foreigners, that all of this contacts might be looked upon as treason and as passing valuable information to the enemy and might have a criminal kind of judgment. And I was like, hmm, they're talking about people like me. So by the time I was playing with my six-year-old son, And I said, like, Vasya, could you play on your own, please? Daddy has some stuff to do.
2: Sasha sent an email to his boss at the think tank in Washington, saying he was planning a last-minute trip to Turkey to get a COVID vaccine. Good idea, came the reply.
1: I purchased the ticket. I talked to my colleagues in D.C. And their advice is, be quiet. Just reduce your media exposure because God knows what can happen. Sasha had planned his escape. He had his ticket and his cover story. But in Russia, nothing is certain. So what I did was packing. uh, I put a bag of potential prison clothes. Because you read a lot of stuff in prison interviews that, oh, you don't want to get in prison without having comfortable clothes or a bar of soap. Russian media was full of this kind of, what do you need on the first day in prison? What's allowed? What's not? And then, as you know, in the 30s and later on, Soviet dissidents had this emergency suitcase, as it's called, either to be evacuated, like extracted, or to go to prison but you have your stuff with you
2: even in 2022 nearly 70 years after stalin's death a high flyer like sasha had to be mentally prepared for the gulag his suitcase is another remnant of that era actual baggage fsb officers questioned sasha at the airport but he made it onto the plane It was not until the flight was out of Russia's airspace that he was able to relax. A few days later, someone from Russian counterintelligence called him, asking if he'd come in for a coffee to discuss the situation. But he had no intention of returning to Russia anytime soon. It's January 2023. I am back in Istanbul and so is Sasha. It's where we both ended up after leaving Moscow when the war began. He suggested we meet in a Russian restaurant. It's called 1924. It was founded by Russians fleeing the Bolshevik Revolution and the Civil War. Now it's like an opulent theme park dedicated to emigre culture from a 100 years ago, with wood panelling, tarnished mirrors, and waiters in starched whites. Plaques on the wall commemorate famous diners of a bygone era, Agatha Christie, Marta Hari, Greta Garbo. But the weight of history put Sasha in mind of his own family story.
1: So, my great-grandfather was a doctor in a very rich family in the city of Tambov. Sasha's ancestors had
2: built something of an agricultural empire,
1: with cattle, horse breeding, grain exports. And by the beginning of the 20th century, it had a subsidiary in London. When the First World War broke out in 1914,
2: Sasha's great-grandfather, Vladimir, served as a military doctor. He came home a couple of years later, and he reported to his own father, Nikolai, that the
1: troops were greatly disillusioned. This war is most likely lost, and there's going to be a big tragedy awaiting us. So better be safe than sorry. Get yourself, get women and children off the family on a steamboat and go to London. Nikolai got angry and told his son to go back and fight. So he never went into exile to Great Britain. So in 1917, when the Bolsheviks take Tambov, the execution squad is right at the door very quickly because they are very visible and rich family. And so the family missed
2: its chance to get out
1: before it was too late. The rich merchant who took a decision that they will not move to London died from hunger in early 1920s. My great-grandfather perished in uh, the Civil War in 1920 in Crimea.
2: Many of those rich merchants and peasants perished in the Civil War. Millions of others including those who fought on the side of the Bolsheviks, were wiped out during Stalin's famine and Great Terror. A layer of the Russian intelligentsia was liquidated.
1: So with all of this, you think like, should I stay or should I go? To me, the better option is to go. And I decided to go.
2: Family memories stay in family albums unless they're actualized by events. For Sasha, February 24th was the beginning of a new cycle in a century of state violence.
1: Many families have similar stories, probably. But it's the terrible, terrible fate of Russia that this misery and violence continues. And because the country in the 90s, after the Soviet Union collapsed, never went through collective therapy. We never fully opened up archives. We never went into the trauma and the terrible things that the Soviet regime did to our own people, to people in Ukraine, to the people in the colonies. The discussion never happened. And then Putin suppressed this discussion, never opened up the archives.
2: In his novel, 1984, George Orwell wrote... Who controls the past, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. Putin took that advice seriously. One of the last things he and his security men did before starting the war was to shut down Memorial, Russia's oldest and most venerated human rights organization. It was set up in the late 1980s, around the same time as the film Repentance was released. And it had a clear mission to document the country's Stalinist past and give voice to its victims. By banning their work, Putin removed one of the country's last safeguards and cleared the path to war. So the cycle of violence continues in Ukrainian cities like Mariupol, Irpen and Bucha. And it continues within Russia. Russia's own communities will be scarred by the horrors their men have inflicted abroad. In one town in particular, the ugly artefacts of Putin's war have already accumulated.
0: Hello, Arkady. Uh, my name is Katerina Kiltava. Sorry, I prefer to speak in Russian because uh, the complex of my feelings.
2: I Katya back in Georgia, From here, her words are voiced by one of our producers. Katya is from Siberia. She grew up in a small town called Rubtsovsk, on the borders with Kazakhstan. Her grandparents were sent there in cattle trains as part of Stalin's deportations. Rubtsovsk is a town of 140,000 people, and it has few attractions. It's dominated by a tractor factory that went bankrupt in 2010 and now lies in ruins. That left one other main employer in the town. The penitentiary system, Ogulag. It consists of five prison camps, all of them fully operational.
0: So you either work in prison or you go to prison. That's kind of joke in Rutsovsk.
2: Except it's not a joke.
0: Because people have been taught that kind of prison education. They learn it through friends, fathers, and so on. That's roughly what a large number of towns look like. They are either military towns or they are prisons.
2: For Katya, the gulag is not something from a history book. It's her home. Unlike Sasha, she didn't mix in elite circles, and she did get involved in politics. For her work on voting rights with GOLAS, an election monitoring organization, she was branded a foreign agent by the Russian government, a shorthand for enemy of the state.
3: A friend
0: sent me a screenshot of the Ministry of Justice website with my last name, my first name, and patronymic, And it was absolutely monstrous feeling. I remember my hands shaking and crying. I rushed around the room. I didn't know what to do, where to go, what to think, where to start.
2: Katya moved to Tbilisi when the war started and founded a charity which helps Ukrainian refugees. But while she could leave Rubtsovsk, it wouldn't leave her. It hit the headlines last year during one of the grimmest chapters of the war. In the middle-class commuter towns of Bucha and Erpen, Russian soldiers murdered over 400 civilians and set about looting their abandoned homes. Among the items taken were clothes, TVs and musical instruments. Independent journalists at MediaZona compiled delivery company data showing where the loot went, hundreds and hundreds of killers of it.
0: Rupsovsk was at the top of the list of the towns across Russia receiving the looted parcels.
2: Katya's hometown received two tons of parcels from Ukraine.
0: I was absolutely crushed to see this news. (sighs) This is a story of hopelessness. It's about a lack of perspective, the absence of social mobility the lack of a clear or understandable
3: future.
0: A lot of people in the provinces, they see the only way to find a purpose, the only way to gain sustenance, to have a life is by going to war and killing
2: people. Why does this keep happening, Katya asks herself. How do you break out of the cycle of violence?
0: Russia, paradoxical as it may sound, will win by losing the war in Ukraine. It needs to destroy the imperialism within itself. Former empires often had these convulsions, this trauma of coming apart. But so much depends on how we deal with this trauma, on the kind of people who come to power.
2: The gravitational pull of the past is strong, but it's not a destiny. In Russia, an individual ruler can profoundly change the country's direction, bringing out the best in its people or the worst. You met Putin, haven't you?
0: A lot of times, yes.
2: Did you think he was capable of this? Yeah. That's next time. Next Year in Moscow is produced by Sam Colbert, Pete Norton and Ksenia Barakowska, with help from Lika Kremer and Libeliba Studios. Additional production and development is by Sandra Schmueli. Our sound design is by Wei Dong Lin, with original music by Darren Ng. Our executive producer is John Shields. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky. This is The Economist.